that you've got to look at my face pretty much from start to finish today. I'm not only leading, but uh, preaching this morning. So feel free to look around the room to find something better to look at than me. Um, We are continuing our series through the Gospel of Mark. We're up to 23 sermons. I forget how many there were in total, but there's 16 chapters in uh, the Gospel of Mark. We will definitely be finished before the end of the year. Um, But it's been wonderful to, uh, to get back and look at the life Uh, ministry, teaching, and soon to be the death and resurrection of Christ. So let's become before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have your word. We thank you that you are a God who communicates uh, with his creation. We thank you that you have given us your word that we might be complete and lacking nothing. And Lord, we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit uh, in me and in all of us to hear your word as the very word of God, to allow to fall to the ground anything that I might say that's not consistent with what you intended in your word. And Lord, we, we pray that we would see something more of the wonder and beauty of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us, uh, that we might be changed in our affections for you in our servitude to to one another and our servitude to you. Uh, Lord, change us to be more like your son as we look at him this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I realised the other day, it's only about three months till Christmas. Now, in our household, there's also three birthdays before Christmas. In other words, in our house, if you're a female, you, all your birthdays, oh, except the dog, um, all of the birthdays are within a, a four-week period. And usually what I notice is as you get close to Christmas or, or to birthdays, it is very common for adults to ask children, what do you want to get for your birthday or for Christmas? Whether it's their own child or someone else's child, they ask that question. And sometimes when you hear those response, you think, that's a great present. Sometimes you hear that response and you go, well, I didn't even know that thing existed. How cool is that? Then there's other times you hear the response to that question and you think, I'm glad I'm not that kid's parent because they're not getting that and they're going to crack it when they don't get it. What sort of kid would ask for something like that? But then sometimes there's another shock answer you get. When the kid says they want something that will actually be more beneficial for someone else other than themselves. doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. Whenever you give an open invitation to somebody asking, what do you want? The answer to that question is a pretty good revealer of their heart and where they're at. And in our passage today that we're looking at, we see two different situations where Jesus asks, firstly, James and John, and secondly, Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? And we see very different responses in both of those situations. But it's not just only about two different types of requests. Jesus makes a significant announcement beforehand that not only comes before these requests but greatly surpasses the things that which particularly the disciples ask for 
And as we work through the passage, we'll see Jesus outline his mission in verses 32 to 34. We see the first request from James and John in verses 35 to 45, a request for status and authority. We see the second request from Bartimaeus for mercy and restoration in verses 46 to 52. And we're going to ask ourselves, what do you want Jesus to do for you? So firstly, the mission. The passage doesn't begin with a request, it begins with an announcement. And verses 32 to 34 is the third time where Jesus has explicitly stated to his 12 disciples, not to a greater group, but to his 12 disciples, the central heart of his mission, that he must suffer, die, and be raised on the third day. On the first occasion, back in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, this fell right after Peter had proclaimed Jesus to be, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. And it seemed like Peter had a pretty good grip on it. But Jesus exposed that he didn't really understand what it meant that Jesus was the Christ. And Jesus went on to explain that he must be persecuted, suffer and die and be raised on the third day. Peter takes him aside and rebukes him for it. Jesus, first time he announces these things, He focused on the necessity. He says, the Son of Man must. It is necessary. It is is essential. It's non-negotiable. It's the central heart of his mission. The second time Jesus shares with the disciples in chapter 9, verses 30 to 32, again, it's specifically just the 12 disciples. It focuses on on the definiteness that these things will certainly take place but it says the disciples didn't understand and they were afraid to ask. And they go on into a big argument about who is the greatest. Now in this third and final prediction of Jesus' death and resurrection is also the most detailed of the three. Given the setting, they've misunderstood in the past what Jesus has said. The passage begins by saying, and they were headed to Jerusalem. So Jesus is headed to the very location where he knows these things are going to transpire. And taking the twelve again, because he's told them before, he began to tell them what what was to happen to him, saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests, to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Every single one of these three announcements he makes exclusively to the 12 disciples. Now in Luke's parallel account of this same event, which is in Luke 18 verses 31 to 34, Luke adds a detail that Jesus says, these things are not only going to happen, but they were the fulfilment of, of all that had been spoken by the prophets. But Luke also records, after Jesus says these words, how the disciples reacted and understood. It says, They understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, so God is preventing them from seeing it at this point in time. They did not grasp what was said. 
So they've heard it three times, but they still do not understand the importance and the meaning of what Jesus has shared with them. And we see references later on about how they remembered he said these things after Christ was risen from the dead. But I get the impression, even though they didn't understand, as they'd done previously, particularly back in Mark chapter 8, after, after Peter had proclaimed Jesus to be the Christ, they see some connection between Jesus being the Christ and these predictions that Jesus was making. Not only because they've been connected previously, but it makes sense of the response that comes afterwards. The request from James and John, a request for status and authority in verses 35 to 45. In this passage, 35 to 45, is the only time, at least in Mark's gospel, where John and James are separated and speaking of, single out, speaking of them on their own. There's a few times when they're separated, mentioned in separation from the twelve, where it's that inner three, Peter, James and John. But this is the only time where it's James and John on their own. According to Matthew's version of the same event, it's not just James and John who ask the question, it's their mum. They send their mum into bat to ask the question. They're there, they're there with their mum, but their mum is the one who introduces the question, which was definitely still their question. Not a contradiction, it's just a different detail of the same story. But the way Mark records it, it's like they're asking for a blank check. We want you to do whatever we ask of you. Now, you know what it's like. Someone comes up to you and they say, Steve, can you do something for me? The normal person's response is, well, that depends on what you want to do. If you're just going to, going to say yes to, will you do what I'm going to ask? If you say yes and they say, well, you're going to give us your house and everything you got, you're a bit stuck. And so Jesus, in a similar manner, says, what do you want me to do for you? And their response was this. They say, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. I've lost control of this, Matt. If... Oh, good, there it is. So when you first read that, you could think, these disciples are committed. Not only do they like being with Jesus now, but even in the future, they want to be as close to him as possible. But it wasn't just about wanting Jesus. It was strongly driven by something they wanted for themselves. In Jewish custom, wherever there was a gathering, the person who was esteemed to have the highest honour, they were central to the company of the gathering. And the, the second and third most honourable positions was those to the right and to the left. And this here is when Jesus entered their glory. This here is what James and John are asking for. We want to be in second and third place. Yeah, it's right that you receive the greatest honour, but we want second and third place. We want silver and bronze. They're asking for a position of honour and glory above every other human being. Among every other of the 12 disciples. 
given how commonly we see Peter, James and John together, and we know how much of a, a loud mouth Peter can be, I imagine Peter would have been really impressed when he found out about this, that he got left out of this one. After all, there's only a left and right, there's not a front and a back. And Luke had already explained to us that the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was talking about with regards to his death and resurrection. But now Jesus also highlights they don't understand what they're asking. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptised with the baptism to which I'm going to be baptised? I think in James and John's mind, they're thinking like most of the other first century Jews, they're thinking that for Jesus to enter his glory was to set up some sort of political reign on earth. And they're like, when you're when you're ruling here on this earth really soon, we want to be in positions of power next to you. They didn't understand that Jesus' pathway to glory and to his reign was through his suffering and through his death. Hence the question he asked them, are you able to drink this cup? Even the language, the way it's written in in Greek, it's written in a particular way where it anticipates the answer is definitely no. It's not a case of a yes, no possibility, pick your box. Jesus is saying, you can't. And he's not just talking about having a little bit of a bevy on the side. To drink a cup in the Old Testament meant to undergo an experience. Sometimes it's used in a positive sense to to receive the the blessings of God and the joy of God. But it's also commonly used in the Old Testament to drink of his judgment and his wrath. And despite their enthusiasm, James and John, who would say, yeah, we can do that, they cannot do what Jesus Christ alone does can do. Jesus Christ alone can drink the cup of God's wrath against sinful mankind because he was the representative, he was the sinless representative on behalf of all of mankind. James and John cannot be baptised into a baptism of death on behalf of sinners to reconcile them to God. Their response of we are able might have had enthusiasm, might have had confidence, but it had ignorance. They didn't understand what they were talking about. Instead, Jesus interprets the the very same phrases in a way in which they would experience it. Jesus turns and speaks in such a way of, yeah, you will experience suffering. For James, as we know, in Acts chapter 12, under Herod, he, he was killed by the sword, he was martyred. John was, according to tradition, was supposed to have been boiled in oil, but he survived, but he was least scripturally described as being exiled to the the island of Patmos, saying, you will suffer for my name, but your suffering will not be the same. Jesus suffered on behalf of sinful mankind. James and John would suffer because of their following of Jesus Christ. This isn't the glorious pursuit that James and John had in mind. But it is the nature of discipleship that Jesus had described to them previously in chapter 8. When he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross 
and follow me. To follow Jesus was about self-denial. There would often be suffering along the way. Now when the other ten disciples hear about it, they're pretty mad. As I said, I reckon Peter would have been the maddest, but they all were. They were indignant with, with James and John. Maybe it's because they wanted to be the ones who got in there and asked the question saying, no, we want them spots. Or maybe they just thought, that is just not consistent with our Lord. That's not consistent with who we are as his followers. Why would you do that? Whatever reason they had for being angry with him, because it's not stated, Jesus decides, okay, boys, we need to have a chat about what does it really mean to be great in the kingdom of God. He needs to show them that his kingdom doesn't follow the pattern of this world. Like he says, take a look at the Gentile leaders you see around you. How they do everything to, to work their way to the top in order that they might assert their power over those whom they lead. That's neither loving nor leading. Real leadership loves those who they lead. Instead, Jesus directs them to a new way of viewing their greatness and leadership. Greatness is not found in asserting your power over people. Rather, it is restraining the power entrusted to you to humbly serve and willingly serve others. Look at the images Jesus used to describe it in verse 43. A servant. Diakonos, the same word that we, that we use for deacon, just means to, to serve, means to, to wait on tables. Something not highly regarded in the society. But then even worse in verse 44, he uses the picture of a slave. He says, you want to know what greatness looks like? It looks like two things that our society around them did not value in any way whatsoever. But this is Jesus. The one who has demonstrated these very principles. The one who has all power and authority, yet didn't have a home to live in, humbly washed his disciples' feet, often served and went to those whom were considered outcasts in society. To the disciples there and to all disciples of Jesus Christ, he says, stop defining your worth by your status. Working your way up to the top doesn't do anything to earn you any favour in the sight of God. We're followers of Jesus. That's who we are. That's our status and that's the greatest status we could ever hope to behold. This Jesus who says of himself, for even the Son of Man, even the most worthy, came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. If anyone had the right to expect the positions of honour, to assert their power and authority, it was Jesus. Yet he said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve, and in serving in the greatest possible way, to lay down his own life for the benefit of those for whom he was serving. To set people free by means of a ransom, language that was used of a payment to set a slave or a prisoner free. Because the scriptures tell us that whether we're aware of it or not, when we're born into this world, we are slaves of Satan. 
We are slaves of sin. We're carrying out his will, his purposes. And Jesus came to lay down his life to set us free, to redeem us, to set us free from our sin, to cleanse us from our sin, to declare us right in his sight, to give us his righteousness, to take us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. So what James and John was requesting, see, contrary to the values of Jesus and his kingdom. Not only does it seem contrary to the value of the king, it overlooks greatly the value of what they have right in front of them and what Jesus offers to all who follow him. It's been a couple of years, but the disciples still have a lot to learn about discipleship. In fact, they're about to learn from someone who hasn't had that same amount of extended period of time with Jesus who understands what it means to follow Jesus a little better than they do. We have the second request, Bartimaeus, who all his request was, have mercy on me. It's interesting. He's the only person who is healed in the Gospel of Mark who gets named. No one else gets named. They might be described. And it's also the final healing that takes place in the Gospel of Mark. Now, Bartimaeus... He's an outsider. He's an outsider in two ways. One, because he's blind. We learn from John chapter 9 that it was the prevailing culture thought that if someone was blind, it must have been because of their sin. And they must have been unclean. Secondly, he was a beggar there by the side of the road. But despite all of this, he's aware that Jesus is coming. He's obviously heard something about Jesus Things must be happening that he knows that Jesus is now coming because clearly he's not seeing him coming. He may not have great eyesight, but he has good insight. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He calls him son of David. That great promise that one would sit upon the the throne of David and reign forever, that great messianic title, the title of the Christ, Bartimaeus says, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now I think what's taking place here is a little bit like what we looked at last week when people were trying to bring the children to Jesus and they go, no, no, don't do that, don't bother Jesus with them, they're not important. Now people are trying to tell Bartimaeus, shh, You're not worthy. Don't don't bother Jesus. And I I get the impression that Bartimaeus would be quite okay if Jesus says, no, no, we don't want to hear from you. But he's like, I want my petition to be heard. And he asks again, son of David, have mercy on me. And this one had been completely outcast from society that it would seem that even those closest to Jesus want him to kind of shush it down a little bit. When Jesus hears these words, He stopped in his tracks. And he tells his disciples, bring him over, call him over. And when he's called to Jesus, this man doesn't think, oh well, I'll just casually get up there. Gets off his coat, thinks that's going to slow me down, and he runs to Jesus. Hope you didn't trip, because I don't think I'd want to run too quickly if if I was blind, but he runs 
to Jesus. And Jesus asked him the same question that he'd asked James and John. What do you want me to do? You kind of think that's a bit of an unnecessary question. It's pretty obvious. The guy's blind. Jesus knows that. Everyone knows it. But he allows Bartimaeus to put it in his own words. He doesn't ask for some prestigious status to be in a position of the left or right. He just wants to be restored. He just wants to be restored to the way in which mankind was created in the first place. He wants to be able to see. He simply says, restore my eyesight. Jesus sees his faith and without hesitation says, you're healed. Off you go. Or literally says, says your faith has made you well. Or literally, says, your faith has saved you. Now we've see, seen a few times in Mark where that same language for healing has been used, which is the normal everyday word for being saved. Sometimes it's just because there's a crossover in the way in which that word is used. But there's been some occasions, and this is one of them, where it seems it actually has and carries both of those meanings. Not only was he physically restored, but spiritually restored. Bartimaeus didn't just see. He was once a guy who was an outsider, begging for mercy on the side of the road. But now, in his encounter with Jesus, he now follows Jesus on the road. That's discipleship. Discipleship begins with the cry for mercy. Have mercy on me, God. And the ongoing nature and evidence of discipleship is that we follow Jesus along the way. So what do you want Jesus to do for you? What do you want from Jesus? Remember when we looked at this passage? The most central mission of Jesus was described in those opening verses. Speaking of his death, resurrection, that's the central aspect of his mission. And that is also our central need. Sure, Jesus encourages us to bring our request to him in prayer, big and small. But if you have never brought before him your greatest need, to be reconciled to God, to have your sins dealt with that's, that keep you separated from him and under his judgment, don't waste your time asking for petty little smaller things. Deal with the big thing first. It's every human's most essential need. Lord, have mercy on me. And don't make the mistake of thinking that coming to Jesus for salvation is just step one towards getting something better. Or step one towards asking for what in your mind might be a bigger goal. There isn't a bigger goal. If you are in Christ you not only have your sins forgiven, you not only have the righteousness of Christ, you not only have the Holy Spirit, you not only have an eternity with him, you get Christ himself. I think if James and John actually understood what Jesus was saying, and if they actually understood who was there before them, and exactly what they had their request for priority of place in second and third in the kingdom probably wouldn't have been a big big issue for them. 
If they had known that the eternal Son of God had entered into the world despite their failure and dishonouring of him to die on their behalf that they might be reconciled to God to know all of the blessings of being united with Christ, I think things would be different. This is going to bring an end to the constant repetitions of sacrifices that never remove sin. They can have confidence they will be right to stand before him, not because of their own works, but because they receive the very righteousness of Christ. That he's crucified on their behalf, raised in power, demonstrating his authority over sin, death and Satan as he rose on the third day. That he would ascend and begin this reign that they long anticipated in his ascension and seated at the right hand of the Father that he would send his Holy Spirit, the fullness of his Spirit upon all of his disciples, that all of Jesus' disciples might have his power and his presence with them. That the very message, the good news that brings people into that, that beloved kingdom would be entrusted to them to go and to share in this world in which we lived. That he will never leave them nor forsake them that he'd bring them into a community that is designed to build them up, to grow them up into maturity, that he'll return in, in glory to judge the living and the dead, the righteous to everlasting life, a life eternal with Jesus, free from all of the corruption of sin that we see in this world. Brothers and sisters, if your biggest preoccupation in prayer is something that you do not have, it's possible that you do not understand or are not captivated by what you already have. And we say, if your biggest, not, not, it's okay to pray about all other things that you don't have, but if your biggest preoccupation in prayer is something that you do not have, then I wonder if you fully understand and love what you already have in Christ. And maybe that thing that you might be preoccupied in prayer for isn't really something you need at all. Might be something you like, might be something that's good. We don't need what we haven't got. Some things are good to have. But according to the scriptures, we have been given all things pertaining to life and godliness. That's why when we come before the Lord in prayer, we say, your will be done. He might give us something that we, that we don't necessarily need that might bless us with good things. But we don't need, we don't have to have something we haven't got. When you look at Paul's prayers for the churches, all of his prayers you could summarise by them saying that may they know what they already have in Christ. Lord, grow us to maturity. Grow us to maturity in the riches that you have already blessed us with. That we might bring you glory. We might proclaim your greatness as we delight in you and are satisfied in you. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to know you. Like Paul, we want to know the power of your resurrection. 
We want to know fellowship with you in your sufferings. We want to know you in all of your goodness. We want to know your holiness. We want to know your sanctification. We want to know that ongoing work in our life that you have promised that you will complete until the day of Jesus Christ. Lord, despite all of the things that are vying for our attention, may we keep our focus on who we really need and what we really need. May we know the riches and the depths of all that we have already been blessed with in Christ. That we've been given every spiritual blessing. And Lord, we, we thank you for what we have now. We thank you that you bless us with things, even things that we don't often need. But just out of the the goodness of your character, that you love to give good gifts to your children. Lord, may we never take our eyes off the giver of the gifts and become distracted by the gifts themselves. Lord, you are our need, you are our life and breath and everything. May that be the desire in our heart. May that be expressed in our priorities of thought in our heart and in our words and our pursuits, that we might know you, that we might love you, that we might serve you and proclaim you for your glory and honour. In Jesus' name, amen. For those who'd like to read in advance, uh, next week we'll be looking at Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 25.